Amen. Do me a favor and track down a Bible if you can find one, and get with me to the book of Jonah. Get with me in Jonah, and that is, uh, if you grab a Bible from the basket down by your feet, you'd find Jonah on page 753, 753. A couple things before I jump into the stuff for today. I want to clarify some things that, that were not clear last week. We, it was Mother's Day, and we were talking about a handful of pretty heavy topics as we kind of cruised through um, the, the text that we had in front of us, and I want to make sure that I make this very clear. We, we bumped into the idea of infertility, and we talked about how hard and challenging that can be, and then we just kept moving, and I felt like, man, what a missed opportunity. If... if uh, you are struggling with infertility, then we as a church want to come alongside you and be a support and help for you. And I know several individuals from our campus who have struggled and would be, and, and would, would, um, would love the opportunity to, to walk beside you through it. So if that's you, um, chat with me after church or chat with Ruth and she can get you in contact with, with the right people. But we definitely want to make sure that those who are hurting are getting the help that they need. And then the other thing we bumped into last week, we talked about parenting. And I was pointing to Eli and saying, man, this was a failed parenting opportunity. And got done with the message, and Ash and I were just, my wife and I were talking, and she said, you know, I think that could have struck certain people in a way that wasn't helpful. And I just wanted to clarify, because I know many of us, as we go through the parenting task, it's hard. And we're doing the best that we can. And I want to say that, that you're not always promised great outcomes uh, immediately. And so if you're struggling in the parenting task, I, I don't want to say anything as a church leader that just makes you feel like, man, I am, I'm not doing this well. We would rather come alongside you and, and support and encourage you in that. So anyways, I felt like last week I didn't make that clear. I often try to, to clarify things and nuance things because life is, is challenging, but I feel like I missed some opportunities last week. Well, let's move into our stuff for today. As a church, what we're doing is we're talking about this concept of belong. We want for people who come to our campus or the Bloy campus or the Janesville campus, we want people to have this experience of this feels like home. It feels safe. And you can come in here with your brokenness and you can be real and people can love you where you're at and help you to get where you need to be. And so we want to be a, a community where people feel this sense of belonging. And we've created some small group materials to go along with that. So we've got our, our workbook, the Belong Workbook. You can pick these up in the lobby. They're five bucks a piece. And several of our groups, a handful of our groups, are using this as their curriculum to go through it and make sure that we're creating a place of belonging. If you're not in a group, you can grab this and grab some friends and, and just start Start working on it together, and uh, our hope is that you would experience a church community where you feel like it's home, and you feel like you connect with people and are being well-loved. So we're going to go into the, the story of Jonah today, and uh, at, at the different campuses, they're looking at this concept of, um, we want people to belong no matter what stage of life you're in. Um, if you're older, you belong here. If you're younger, you belong here. And we want to create a community where that's true. And so we're looking at Jonah, and I just felt like, here's what, I, here's what we're going to do this morning at the McChesney Park campus. We're going to look at Jonah, and, and what I'm going to suggest is that we can learn from Jonah how to become gospel people, 
how to become people who examine our own hearts and recognize our own need for grace. And the more that we do that, the better situated we will be to create a culture of grace where people come in and we, we're safe and we can, deal, we can love one another and we can relate to one another in a way that is truly helpful. So I'm going to pray and then we're going um, to look at the book of Jonah. But let's bow and ask for God's help right now. God, would you speak right now? We don't want to hear this dude's voice. We want to hear your voice. We pray, God, that by your spirit, you would take your word and help us as a church family to be gospel people. I know that there are people this morning in here who maybe have never surrendered to you and to what you're doing. They've never trusted in you for salvation. I pray that you would use this time to accomplish that purpose. But all of us, God, we never graduate from grace. So would you help each and every one of us to be honest about our hearts, uh, to be aware of our blind spots, and to be disrupted by the beauty of your mercy and grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of you may not have heard the story of Jonah before, so I'll rehearse it very briefly, and I won't hit everything, so feel free to read it while I'm preaching. That might be a better use of your time. Um, But in the story of Jonah, what you have is God speaking to an individual, saying, this, I want you to go, Jonah, to this great city of Nineveh, and I want you to preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. And Jonah says, oh, I don't like that plan. And he pieces out, and he actually goes in the exact opposite direction. He goes down to a port city, and he finds a boat that's traveling opposite from Nineveh. And he starts heading that way, away from God. And there, there's the crew on the ship, and God, in mercy, sends a storm. And the storm threatens to capsize the ship. And so all the sailors are freaking out, and they're praying to their gods, and they're wondering, what on earth is happening here? And they say, where's Jonah at? And they go down in the bottom of the, the vessel, and they find him sleeping. And they're like, dude, wake up. We're about to die, and don't you care that we're going to die? Pray to your God, and, and let's, let's figure out how we can navigate through this storm. And Jonah begins to reveal that he is a servant of the Most High God, the true God, the living God, and he's running from him. And they think to themselves, we're in deep trouble. And they begin to throw cargo overboard, and they begin to row as hard as they can. And Jonah says, here's what you'll need to do. If you guys want to be safe, you have to throw me over. And they say, no way, if you're God's guy, we're not going to lay our hands on you. And they, they try harder to get back to shore, but it's just it's not feasible. And finally, they begin to pray to this God of Jonah. And they say, please do not hold us accountable for our actions right now. We don't know what else to do. And they throw him in, and the sea goes calm. And they then begin to worship God and offer sacrifices and make vows to him. And Jonah gets swallowed by a fish. It says that God sends a fish to swallow Jonah. And he's inside the belly of the fish. And he begins to have one of those days, I don't know if you've ever had this before, where you go, I think I made some, some bad choices here, right? Like he's realizing, I'm inside a fish right now, and I'm running from God, and he is chasing me. And he begins to pray then, and he begins to acknowledge how foolish this thing is. Um, and, and he begins to pray, and he begins to repent, and he begins to acknowledge how God is at work and all of this, and the, the fish spits him out, and God recommissions him and says, hey, go to Nineveh and preach against it. And so Jonah goes this time and, and he says, okay, uh, guys, uh, you're going to get torched. 40 days and Nineveh is going to be overturned. And that's his message to them. And then he goes outside the city and he sits down and he's like, I can't wait to see this when God destroys this city, this wicked city. 
And um, what happens is, as he's preaching, people hear the message, and it gets to the king, and the king says, all right, guys, everybody needs to repent. We all need to turn from our wicked ways. We all need to pray to God. We all need to pray that we would be spared from this destruction that's coming our way. And so Jonah's sitting there, and he's waiting for it to come. He's like, I can't wait for this to be all Sodom and Gomorrah, fire from heaven, torching these people, these awful, these awful people, and it doesn't happen that way. And he starts to reveal his heart. And he says, God, I knew this was going to happen. This isn't right. I cannot believe that you, God, would be merciful to this kind of, these kind of people. And he's angry, and he says, I'm so upset. I, I, if you're going to be like this, God, I would just as well die. And then God provides for him this little shade plant that grows up over him, and he's in the sun, and it's hot, and this shade gets over his head, and he's like, thank you. And he's so grateful for the relief that he has in that moment. And then the next morning, a worm comes and eats his plant, and it falls over, and he again begins to curse God. I can't believe this is happening. I would rather die. And God says to him, you care so deeply about this plant don't I have the right to care about this entire city? That's the end of the book. That's the end of the book. It's a cliffhanger. You don't know how Jonah's going to respond to this, but you begin to see that his heart has been revealed. So this story of Jonah is very dear to me. In fact, 10 years ago, when we were doing outdoor outreach at the tree farm, this was the the book of the Bible that we went through. Five different messages on the book of Jonah, and it has profoundly influenced me. Um, in fact, I've had conversations with former campers and volunteers who were there that year, and they, were, they pointed to this book and some of the messages that were delivered that week, and they, they talked about how God was changing them through that. And so I want to give you f- uh, four different lessons from Jonah that I think if we will embrace, if we will allow to change us, we could become the kind of church community that is welcoming, that is safe, that we are gospel people and we create gospel culture then. So here's the first one. First lesson that we need to see. Number one, God is merciful to the unlikely. We tend to think that God likes good people and doesn't like bad people. And we create church culture that kind of fits that paradigm. And that's the world that Jonah's living in. Good people show up at church on Sunday mornings, but bad people stay away. And God likes the good people more than the bad people. But what does the story show us? God has mercy on whom he has mercy, and he often displays that mercy and that grace to the unlikely people, the people you would not suspect, the people who don't turn up on Sunday morning for church. We see it over and over again. It is the character of God, and that's exactly what Jonah says in chapter 4. He prayed to the Lord in Jonah 4.2, and he said, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. He said, this is your character. And that's why I didn't want any part of this because they're bad people. They're evil, wicked people. And I knew that if I go there, then there's a chance that you might be merciful to them because that's your character. And he says, I I didn't want anything to do with it. It's part of who God is. He is merciful to the unlikely. He's merciful to the Ninevites. They are a wicked place. In verse 2, it tells us that the wickedness has come before God. He's acknowledging that they're awful. I've I've read historical accounts about Nineveh and some of the things that they would do, and and it it is awful. It is awful. The Bible says it's awful. 
History teaches us awful. These people were doing despicable things. And this wickedness had come before God. And when Jonah goes there and begins to preach, what does God do? He shows them mercy. He shows them mercy. Verse uh, 10 of chapter 3. After the king declared that everyone should fast and pray, after everyone began to do that, verse 10 said, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. The character of God is that he is merciful and his mercy often flows to those who are undeserving. And the truth is, there's no other kind of person. All of us are undeserving. We cannot earn God's mercy or his grace. And so his mercy and his grace are flowing downhill to everyone who acknowledges, I'm a needy person. But mercy shows up to the unlikely. It showed up for the sailors. You think about their story. Bunch of people who are just doing their thing, trying to go from a port city, trying to go to another place. They're worshiping all these different gods. They each have their own gods, it says, that they're praying to their own god. Joan 1.5, that each of the sailors crying out, praying different, different gods. They don't believe that there's one true God yet. And so Jonah's in there, and he's sleeping, but here's what's incredible. Even though this is a reluctant prophet who's not doing what God wants him to do, God has a, a vessel of his mercy on board. He's got a man on the ship who is a carrier of God's mercy and God's grace, even if he doesn't want to be. And what happens to the sailors then? They experience the transforming grace of God. And when Jonah tells them, here's what you need to do, throw me overboard, they begin to pray to this one true God, and they begin to recognize and acknowledge, this is the God we need. This is the God who saves. This is the God over all of creation. This is the one that we have. And he begins to worship. They begin to worship, and they begin to make sacrifices and vows to him. So again, God's mercy flowing to the unlikely. It's not, it's not right away showing up in the life of the religious guy. Instead, it's showing up in the lives of all these unlikely candidates. But it also shows up in the life of Jonah. God is merciful to this reluctant prophet. God is showing his mercy and his grace to him in a handful of ways. One of the things that's, that's a mercy is that God would even call him. Jonah, I want you to be a part of what I'm doing. When God says that, and he does say that to every believer, he invites us into his mission in the world. And when that happens, it is a mercy. When, when God says, I'm going to use ordinary people to accomplish my extraordinary purposes in this world, that's a, that's a grace. That's incredible that any of us could be used of God for his purposes. And God does that for Jonah, not just once, but he rehearses it again, even after he's been disobedient. And he's saying, I want you to go, and I want you to speak. And that's a mercy and a grace. Another mercy that Jonah gets to experience is that God is pursuing him and disrupting his life. Now, most of us don't really have that category because we think mercy and kindness is when God kind of lets me do what I want to do. And that's not really the case. Sometimes God will look at our rebellion and he will say, I'm sending a storm because I love them. I'm going to send something that's going to disrupt their comfort so that they would recognize their need for me. You can read it. It's in the text that God sent a storm after Jonah. Later on, he disrupts his comfort when he sends a worm to eat a plant. But God, in those moments, he's loving Jonah. And he's saying, look, you've got blind spots here, dude. You think you know what's best, but you really have a heart that is corrupted. You think you know what I'm all about, but you are missing the significant reality that I love people who are far from me. And so God is showing mercy to Jonah by 
doing things in his life that are inconvenient. He's pursuing him even while he's disobeying. He provides for him. He provides a fish. So he gets cast overboard and a huge fish swallows him up, and that's God's work. The fish spits him to where he needs to go, and he recommissions him. He gives him a shade plant. While he's sitting there watching the city, hoping it'll get torched, God is providing for him. And then again, he provides a worm as well to say, this thing that you cherish so deeply pales in comparison to what I'm up to and what you ought to care about. All of that is a mercy of God. And this whole story, God is really entreating Jonah to examine his own heart and see his need to repent and experience the same mercy and grace that God is so big on. He's entreating Jonah to do that. So God is merciful to the unlikely. He's merciful to people who do not deserve it, people who are far from God and people who are in God's presence but living with a distance to him. So let's think about what this means for our church. This week I had a, a physical. I was, you know, I'm getting older and I'm just trying to be healthy, and so I go to the clinic, and what do I find there? A bunch of sickly people. And they got their masks on, and I'm trying not to touch anything. And I walk in, and I'm just reminded, this feels like church, right? You walk into church. When you go to a hospital, what you find there are people who are needy people who are sick, people who are broken, people who need help. What should you find when you go to church? Same thing. It looks different. It's not physical ailment necessarily, but we're all broken people. When you come to church, it ought to feel and look a little messy. It ought to feel and look like, all right, there's a bunch of, uh, there's a ton of sinners in here today. I'm one of them, and this is going to be hard, but this is what, it, that's what church ought to feel like. That, that, Broken people are showing up. Church should not feel like, hey, we've got everything figured out, and we just come together to make our lives look a little bit better than they really are. No, church is a place for broken people. So here's what I'm saying. If we pursue God's agenda and his mercy is flowing to the unlikely, expect that when you show up, there are going to be unlikely people here. And you might think to yourself, really? They're here at church? He's preaching? Really? And, and what we find then is that God will bring in the unlikely people. That was a feature of Christ's own ministry. Another thing that you should be ready for is that if you are going to be on mission with God, if you're going to be like Jonah and be a part of what God is doing in the world, one of the things you should be aware of is that God is going to expose your heart. That he not only wants you to participate but through that experience, he's going to reveal blind spots in you. He's going to reveal motivations in your heart. He's going to reveal things that he wants his mercy to also target and change. That's disruptive, but it is beautiful. God is, he is pleased to do that. And it is hard work, and, and it is not fun, but, but it is an important and good work that God does for us. So expect for that. All right, that's the first point, that Unlikely people experience the mercy of God. Here's the second thing that I want you to see. And this one is more for uh, those of us that are, that are we're committed to this thing, but sometimes we miss the whole thing. Watch this. The second lesson I want you to see is that it, it's easier than you might think to be at odds with God. It's easier than you might think to be at odds with what God is doing in the world. Jonah is not just some bum who God said, hey, I want you to do this. And he goes, no, 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 I'm not doing that. Jonah is a faithful prophet of God. He actually has a backstory. You can read about it in 2 Kings. He is a, a person who has spoken on behalf of God and had great success before. 
In 2 Kings 14, it talks about how the boundaries, this is uh, verse 25 of 2 Kings 14, the boundaries of Israel from Labohamath to the Dead Sea were restored in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet from Gath-Hefer. What it's saying is Jonah had an experience with God. He was a person of God, and he knows what it's like to be faithful and to actually see success happen. That when he proclaimed certain things, it came true according to the word of the Lord. So Jonah is a successful prophet who now we find him at odds with what God is doing in the world. Jonah's issue then isn't that he is at, that he's unwilling or opposed to God in general. He's opposed to doing things in a way that doesn't fit his preference. God's at work, and if it doesn't go the way I think it should, if it doesn't play out the way I want it to, then I'm not on board. That's what's happening here. This reality is something that we all face, and, and I'm bringing it up in church because a lot of us, you know, we're two years old, but a lot of us come with backgrounds of church experiences. And we can come into church and we can say, I know what we need to do. I know exactly what we need to do. If our church would do these different things, everything would, would be peachy. We'd be reaching the lost. The community would be transformed. We'd be on fire for God. We can do all these different things and experience the success of God. But what happens if it doesn't go our way? What happens if it doesn't go our way? What Jonah is showing us here is he loves being a man of God. He loves the assignment that he had gotten before. Here's the problem. Now God wants him to do it in a different way, and it doesn't fit his desire. He doesn't want to go to Nineveh. He doesn't want to have to travel there and interact with those people, and he doesn't want them to come to saving faith. It is easier than we might think to be at odds with God. Now, here's a verse that has haunted me for the last 10 years, and it comes in his prayer when he's inside the belly of the fish. It's chapter 2, verse 18. Look at what he says. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. I learned it, I think, in the NIV 84 where it says it like this. Um, Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace of God that could be theirs. What is Jonah saying? Inside the belly of the fish, he's coming to this awareness. There are certain things that we might hang on to, but by doing that, we are actually turning away from God's love. We think this is so important. We feel that this is the right way to do things. But by our clinging to them, what are we actually doing? Forfeiting the grace of God that could be ours. We're committed to this and we want this so bad, but what we find out is by hanging on to these idols, we're actually rejecting what God is doing. And so we need to be willing to examine our hearts. The irony here is, though Jonah is saying it out loud and he's committing it now to Scripture here, he still doesn't get it because it shows up later. He, he knows this to be a truth, but he's not had his heart changed by this truth yet. So at the end of the book, what do we find him doing? He's sitting there pouting, saying, God, I didn't want to be here in the first place. I knew you were going to be gracious to these people. I thought there was a better way to go about this. And, and, and he says, and listen, what you're doing here, I'm not on board with. I want to die. So look at, look at how he responds then when God gives him a plant and takes that plant away. Verse 6, then the Lord provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head and to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant, right? God gives him a blessing in that moment. Here's a plant. Here's shade. Take advantage of this. Enjoy the show. And he's sitting there, and he's going, this is wonderful. This is what I'm talking about, God. And then God says, oh, yeah, here's your worm. 
I love how Newton put it. He said, God is willing to blast your gourds. If this is a gourd plant, Newton used to say, God will blast your gourds because he loves you. But look at this. He's, he, the next verse says, um, but at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and he said, it would be better for me to die than to live. What is he doing? Clinging to worthless idols. He's clinging to worthless idols and he's forfeiting the love of God. He's turning away from the love of God because he's so determined to have it go his way, to have it look the, and feel the way he wants, and to be comfortable while all of that's unfolding. And, and what is he really doing? He's missing out. He's missing out on what God is doing. And God has to scold him for it. So, he, guys, w- one of the things we have to be willing to do is examine our hearts. If you're reading the book of Jonah, one of the purposes for the book of Jonah is for us to examine our hearts. What are our idols? What are the things that we cling to and say, it must go this way? It must happen like this. What are the things that we so desperately cherish? Now, idols are, there's, you know, a reformer said the heart is an idol factory. It's just constantly cranking them out. And, you know, if we're looking at our hearts, there are tons of different things that we can cherish and love more than we ought to. But David Paulinson, a biblical counselor, he gives us a couple questions to help us identify idols. And one of them is, what is the thing or things or person that you think about when you're daydreaming? What is it that your mind gravitates to? What is it that you just kind of, if you had some white space in your life and you're sitting there, you're just thinking about it. It occupies your thoughts. Now, it's probably a good thing. Most idols aren't awful, terrible things. It's probably a great thing. But if you love that more than God, that's an idol. And he's saying, look, if you're sitting around and you're daydreaming about this, this thing that you cherish, that, that could be an idol, and you need to examine your heart. And the other question, another question Paulinson gives, it fits with this text. He says, what if it were taken from you? This person, this place, this thing, this concept, this vocation, this identity of yours, what if it were taken from you would absolutely devastate you? You would say with Jonah, fine, if I can't have that, count me dead. I don't want to live if I can't have this thing. If you have that sort of language of your heart as you think about certain items, those, those things are, those are idols. And, and we need to examine our hearts to know what is it that we cherish that if it doesn't go our way, we are going to throw a fit. We're, we're going to get angry. We're going to get bitter. We're going to curse God out and say, look, you shouldn't be doing this. And I think the truth is we, we need to look at our hearts. And, you know, as a leader, I'm aware I'm dealing with this, that there are certain things that I want to happen my way. And I have to be willing to say, look, if it is an idol, I can cling to that. I can cherish that. I can demand that these things need to happen. But what am I doing? I'm forfeiting the grace of God. So we need to be careful because it is easier than we might think to be at odds with God. So let's test our hearts. Let's examine our hearts. Let's be the kind of church that says, look, if we follow God, it might feel different than than what we think it should feel like. If we follow God for his design for our church, it might actually look quite a bit different than what we love. And we have to be willing to say, I'd rather do that. I'd rather be uncomfortable. I'd rather church to feel you know, foreign to me. I'd rather church to be this thing that I don't, that I don't, you know, wake up going, man, this is the greatest thing ever. But I say, look, God is at work here. And even though it's disruptive to what I want, I want to be a part of it. 
I want to see what God is up to, and I want to be willing to go with him. So it is easier than you might think to be at odds with God. Here's the third lesson. Third lesson that I think is really important is that um, salvation belongs to the Lord. In, inside the belly of the fish, Jonah begins to, when he's praying, he says it like this in verse 9, what I have vowed I will make good, I will say salvation belongs to the Lord. And what he's acknowledging is God saves people how he wants to save people when he wants to save people. It, it's his work. And I might determine who deserves it and who doesn't, but that's not how it really works. I might say, God should save these kinds of people. They look like me. They think like me. But people who are different, he's probably not going to save them. No, Jonah begins to realize he can save sailors. He can save Ninevites. He can save reluctant prophets. But God is the one who saves. So we need to be careful to recognize then that salvation belongs to God. And God, by the power of his gospel, will save people. And, and that's exciting. And then we should just be comfortable with, okay, if God's Spirit is doing this work that we can't perform, we don't have to manage a program that, that determines, here's how people are going to get saved around our church. No, we don't know. We don't know. Salvation belongs to the Lord. The Spirit might be blowing in a specific way that isn't even on our radar, but salvation belongs to the Lord. Max Stiles is a, a missionary, and he's now a pastor in Dubai and he was speaking to a group of pastors, and he put it like this, and he's just acknowledging that salvation belongs to the Lord, and we need to get comfortable then doing whatever God has called us to do. If, if salvation belongs to him, we just be faithful doing what God has called us to do. But he says, here's the reality, talking to pastors, he says, most of us would prefer the ministry of Jonah to the ministry of Jeremiah. Jonah, even though he's a punk, and he just comes out and he says, guys, you're going to get smoked. But the whole city turns to, to God and gets saved. And um, Jeremiah, a very different story. Jeremiah is a faithful man of God, another prophet. And God says, here's my words. I want you to speak them and, and persist in it. And what happens with his ministry? Nobody listens. And Stiles was saying, most of us would rather be Jonah than Jeremiah. But the truth is, you know what God wants from us? Faithfulness. He wants us to be faithful. He wants us to do the ministry that he assigns to us, and he wants us to trust that salvation belongs to him. And so let's figure out how to go about that. Let's be that kind of church. All right, here's the fourth and final point. I'll be brief. What we need to do then to experience this radical saving grace is to repent. And that's the theme that runs all the way through the entire book of Jonah. It's an invitation to repent. If you want to experience God's grace, the way to lay claim of it is to acknowledge, I am not living right with God, and I'm going to turn away from these idols, and I'm going to turn toward him, and I'm going to receive forgiveness and grace and salvation. We need to repent. That's exactly what happens in the story. I believe that the sailors repent as they're praying to God, don't hold us guilty, and they're saying, we're going to trust in the means that you have told us about to experience peace. We're going to trust that if we throw this dude overboard, we're going to be okay. We don't know this to be true, but this is your word through your guy, and we're going to throw him overboard. But we're repenting because now we're realizing you're in control. What are they doing? They are, they, they are giving us a picture of the gospel. We trust in God's means of saving us. And the way that he has done that is his son got thrown overboard. His son Jesus was willing to go into the depths of the sea so that we could have peace. And we trust in him and we believe in him, but we have to repent and acknowledge we can't save ourselves. 
We have to trust in what God has done. The Ninevites, they repent when they pray urgently and they call urgently on God. They give up their evil ways and their violence. They say, who knows, but God may yet relent with compassion and turn from his fierce anger and we will not perish. They're they're repenting and they experience salvation. Now here's the last dude I want to point out. Did Jonah repent? Did he experience God's grace? Because throughout the story, it's kind of back and forth. Is he faithful? Is he not? You get to the end of the story, it's a cliffhanger. Did he repent? I believe he did. I believe that his book is that document of repentance. Who, who else could have written about being inside the belly of a fish? So he goes later on, and he goes, I'm going to write this thing down. This story is insane. And he writes it down, and he goes, guys, look at what I did. I clung to these worthless idols, nationalism and pride. I clung to thinking that we are better than everyone else. I, I held on to these things, and I and, and I forfeited God's love, and I missed out. But I believe that he repents by writing this letter and acknowledges, if you want to experience the transforming power of grace, you repent. And I love what Martin Luther said. He said, all of the Christian life is one of repentance. We never get away from this concept, friends. We always acknowledge we need more grace. And we're never going to graduate from it. What God has done in the sending of his Son That's what we're always going to need. That's our lifeblood. That's how we are going to exist as believers. We're going to cling to the finished work of Jesus Christ and trust in him. I'm going to invite the band to come, and as they get set, let me just put it like this. If we trust in this good news of God's grace, if we repent of our sin and acknowledge our need and examine our hearts and we find things that we're not proud of there, but we find God forgiving us over and over and over again, we find God pursuing us when we're trying to be resistant and rebellious. I believe that if we experience God's persistent love in that way, we will be the kind of community that offers that up well. And when people show up, we're gospel people. We're broken people. We're needy people. We're constantly repenting. And so we can invite other people to experience that safety and that goodness. God is relentless. He's the hound of heaven. He'll gladly disrupt your schedules and your comforts in order to give you more of himself. Don't cling to worthless idols. Embrace God's incredible love. Let's pray. God, right now we're asking, um, I'm sure there are people in here who just need to stop pretending and stop leaning on religious experiences and acknowledge that there are idols that are going on in their hearts and they're not loving you and serving you as they ought. Help them to confess that and to find forgiveness and grace in this moment. Help us, God, to be a church community where brokenness is normal because we're all needy people and we're all repenting and we're all trying to help one another experience your grace. Lord, we we pray that this could be a church family where people come in and they experience the gospel and they experience safety and they experience sincere relationships. Help us to do that. And we believe that's all, powerful, that's all possible because of our powerful Savior who gave up his life for us. We need you, Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen.